Hey guys, I'm Marissa. And I'm Eric. And this is Film Chatter. Hey guys, welcome back to Film Chatter, where we bring you the classics, hidden gems, cult, contemporary, and more every two weeks. So Eric, what are we talking about here today? I think we're talking about your favorite genre, something like that, right? Yeah, I think so. And maybe your least favorite genre. <laughs> maybe my least favorite genre. <laughs> Don't um, murder me, neo-noir fans, but we are talking about <laughs> neo-noir today. Neo-noir, yeah. All righty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, today's topic on neo-noir. I researched from this book that I bought a while back because, yes, this is my favorite genre, neo-noir. So I bought this book called American Neo-Noir, The Movie Never Ends. It's a book by Ellen Silver and James Ursini. And I just want to start off with this uh, quote um, in the foreword from Walter Hill. Um, So Walter Hill says this, noir, as someone said, more than a style, less than a genre, but we know it when we see it, at least we think so, and now neo-noir. So just to give a little definition, um, because we first have to start from the beginning, film noir. So years, decades of critical debate about seriously, like what defines uh, film noir, Um, and the issue is still not entirely resolved, um, but Film noir was never a genre, but an American film movement that was defined by style as much as content. And it began around the same time as World War II and ended just 20 years later. So the time frame, um, according to the book, uh, they say that it began just after 1940 with the Maltese Falcon, and it wound down around 1960 or shortly after Touch of Evil in 1958. Some notable film noir uh, films We have, uh, starting with the Maltese Falcon, uh, Double Indemnity, The Big Sleep, Out of the Past, The Third Man, DOA, uh, Sunset Boulevard, The Big Heat, and Touch of Evil. So now, how does this relate to neo-noir? So let's give a little definition into neo-noir. So there's no precise moment or movie that marks the beginning of neo-noir. Neo-noir is more genre than movement, a mimicking of the style and content of the classic period. And a best early example is John Borman's 1967 Point Blank, an adaptation of The Hunter, part of a post-war hard-boiled series of Parker novels about the criminal underworld. And it's tied closely to a literary uh, movement, riffs on the work of Hammett, Chandler, and McCoy, starting with the gritty exploration of sociopathy um, by Jim Thompson, the smug misogyny of Spillane's by Kammer, and then a next generation that included Westlake, Ross McDonald, and Elmer Leonard. Can I just defend myself here? And because all this was really great, and I'm not saying that I really hate the genre, I just. <laughs> the way you make it sound, okay, let me just say I'm a big fan of film noir. I loved the Double Indemnity, and yeah. The Big Sleep is awesome, as well yeah, as yeah. The Big Heat. And, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say any- it, Eric. Say it. <laughs> I just got to see. Well, by the end of this episode, we'll get into a little bit of our opinions over on the genre here. Um, <laughs> but just to give some, you know, 
examples of how neo-noir kind of similarly and differently relates to uh, film noir. Pretty much what it does is it expands and goes beyond the limits of the film noir tropes. And uh, the moral code of film noir is kind of more ambivalent. So whereas you would see maybe anti-heroes, but you would get some justice in these films, the justice served in neo-noir can sometimes be immoral or just totally non-existent. And the character doesn't always catch the hero or the villain, and the hero isn't always necessarily good. And neo-noirs even capitalize on the anti-hero trope by expanding it to go deeper. So you have some really, really disturbed or, or sociopathic type of uh, heroes in these films compared to film noir, which is a lot more contained. And so if you want to make, if you want to know the biggest difference, in my opinion, it's just that it expands what film noir was and kind of opens the floodgates into more opportunities, more, more chances to kind of go beyond just what film, film noir was. And you have, uh, usually you have a search for truth or answers. So narratives usually kind of make the truth hard to find. You have secret slides and illusions that are used as common plot devices. Most of the time in these, the truth really isn't that nice. And uh, some of the films that I have, the truth is kind of god awful. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, and and before recording this, like, <laughs> yeah, Eric was telling me that <laughs> he said that the movies were really hard to watch all in one, all in one, like back to back. It's um, like hitting yourself with negativity, like <laughs> constantly, and it yeah. got a little unbearable. Which I gotta say, it, okay, going one of the reasons why it's not my favorite genre. Um, but nonetheless, there are some spectacular films in this genre. I mean, we have Dress to oh, Kill, yeah. L.A. Confidential, Chinatown, To Live and Die in L.A., Blood Simple, Blood Simple, mm -hmm. wow. Coen so, Brothers, the first one, debut. Uh-huh. And we yeah. have Body Heat, Mona Lisa, One False Move, Miami Blues. That's such a great title, Miami Blues. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's an early uh, Alec Baldwin movie. Um, I highly recommend watching that. The it's, guy from 30 Rock? That that shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 30 Rock guy? No, the 30 Rock guy. Yeah, yeah. You have to, um, or it's complicated for, <laughs> for some of you people who are like into, uh, what is it, Nancy Meyer movies? Or um, just Stephen Baldwin's brother. I, I guess nobody knows. The Baldwin brothers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Miami Blues. Um, Eric, have you seen this one? No, but th the title is awesome oh my god it's it's batshit crazy it's it it's one of those great neo-noirs i believe it's oh god i believe it's like late 80s or early 90s it's it's on amazon prime so if you guys want to check it out um do recommend checking that one but um yeah i believe actually the cinematography for that one uh was done by talk fujimoto which i know that hey there we yeah. go yeah he'll come <laughs> talk, up later yeah he actually <laughs> talk fujimoto has done a lot of like the the neo-noir movies i've noticed um, oh yeah. yeah so yeah he did that one um blue steel too uh okay. catherine bigelow early 90s yeah some of these some of these early 90s action action neo-noir movies but um, yeah i love that so before we begin, we just want to take a moment to discuss something that we've been working on and are excited to officially launch, our Patreon page. So you may not know this, but we produce this show just between the two of us. And with this Patreon, we believe we can have a chance to finally grow this show in the future. And with three pledged tiers, we'll be providing and adding as we go, including some sweet new perks, such as bonus episodes, film chatter merchandise, written essays on films, and more. If you'd like to join our Patreon community, you can find the link in our episode show notes or in our bio on Instagram and Twitter. 
Thank you to everyone who has supported us so far, whether you're current or a future patron, or just listening in every two weeks. We send you our appreciation from the bottom of our hearts. And I did owe that sentiment. Thank you. So uh, we have something to shout out today, don't we? Yes, we do. All right. <laughs> we have Patreon shout outs to give out. We want to shout these individuals out for supporting us and for donating to our Patreon. So Without further ado, I'll list my names here. So I'd like to give a shout out to Trevor S., George S., not related, but they might as well be, and Lisa R. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting us and Marissa. All right. Well, I'd like to shout out Inez L. and Mary Helen E. Thank you so much, guys, for um, pledging uh, and being our patrons for uh, Film Chatter. It really means a lot to me and Eric. And that being said, uh, why don't we jump into it, into our first uh, film of today. So my first film here, um, I, I feel embarrassed to say that I watched this as a kid, but it's a <laughs> it's not a very kid-friendly film. Um, and it's a neo-noir, so uh, shout out to my parents for letting me watch this as a six-year-old. But um, this film is badass. Uh, I really like this. And it's New Jack City in 1991, directed by Mario Van Peebles. Living, living. Wesley Snipes, we will own the city. Ice T, Alan Payne, Chris Rock, Mario Van Peebles, Christopher Williams, Vanessa Williams, Tracy Camilla Johns, and Judd Nelson. This is Detective Nick Peretti, big crazy jarhead, motorcycle freak, reject cop, just like you, Scotty. Money, money, On the money, streets, money, 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 there's money, a fine line money, between money, wrong money, and right, money, good and bad, between those who enforce the law. It is a war out there. And those who break it. Gone are the days of selling on the street corners, dark alleyways in the back rooms of some bummy ass bar. We ain't with that no more. In a city where survival depends on friends. It's always business. On family. We gotta look out for one another. On trust. On loyalty. On power. And I'm my brother's keeper. And I'm my brother's keeper. Yes, I am. A family out to run a city are up against cops who know its streets. This ain't business. This is personal. And this is big business. This is the American way. City. Oh, yeah. So New Jack City is about drug tycoon Nino Brown and his crime family, Cash Money Brothers, uh, which I'm sure Cash Money Records, the rap group with Lil Wayne and Drake, <laughs> kind of took inspiration from, but I, just speculation. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> Uh, they take over the narcotics world of New York City at the peak of the Reagan era as detectives Scotty Appleton and Nick Peretti go undercover in the streets to take him down. As the Cash Money Brothers' power and wealth grows, so too does Nino's Brown's greed and ego. So this film was written by Thomas Lee Wrightenberry, Michael Cooper. And um, so it's kind of hard not to talk about race in this film because it is very heavily seeped in race relations. Um, interesting to look at the cast in relation to the film and the crew as well. Uh, Thomas Lee Wright and Barry Cooper are, are white and black respectively. And um, 
So, you know, it's just, it's interesting to put the speculation of race into this and um, how perspectives might've played a role in this film. Uh, you also have a, a mostly black cast with um, Wesley Snipes as Nino Brown, Ice-T as Scotty Appleton, Alan Payne as G-Money, one of my favorites, by the way. I actually have never heard of anything Alan Payne has been in, but this one mm. as G-Money. He, he, he was your standout? Yeah, he's a real standout for me. I like his accent in this. I'm not going to try and do it, but you just got to hear it for yourself. <laughs> That's good, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, just no chance. Um, we have Chris Rock as Pookie, another standout. Oh, oh. yeah, Pookie. Chris Brock, uh, Chris Brock. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Rock brings Chris some Brock. <laughs> Chris Brock that's his name uh for now on Chris Brock brings some much needed humor to this as he this film can get uh, at times and Chris Brock just comes in with the, you notice yeah. I'm not really saying it but I'm kind of saying it like <laughs> poor, poor Pookie I'll just, poor Pookie. yeah I'll just yeah. say that and we also have so Mario Van Peebles comes from and it comes from the outside the frame into the frame as Stone, one of the detectives. Um, mm -hmm. We also have, rest in peace, Bill Nunn as Duh 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 Man. And Love me why, some Bill Nunn. <laughs> oh, I got two, I got two Bill Nunns here. Um, yeah. A later, later, oh, yeah? uh, a later yeah. film, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's Duh 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 Man. And the reason why they call him that is because he has a stutter. And um, mm -hmm. so, you know, he's not dumb man. He's dumb, dumb man. Do the right um, thing. Bill yeah. <laughs> yeah. Radio Rahim. Yeah. Um, and to round out, we have Judd Nelson as Nick Peretti. So the first thing I noticed as I was writing this down in my notes is that there are little to no women in this film. I think this is a very, very masculine film. Like mm -hmm. the masculine energy is through the roof here. I mm -hmm. suppose that's a reflection of the time. Um, considering that, you know, the only two female characters that I can even recall from this film are either uh, one member of the Cash Money Brothers and then two other ones, which are love interests that, you know, are kind of diminished to roles that are uh, non-important, which is kind of a shame. Um, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, this cast is, is very great um, and they all make it a really great film. And to give a background about this film, so this film was made during an era of excellent Black cinema. You had Spike Lee, Carl mm -hmm. Franklin, John Singleton, and F. Gary Gray all coming out with great films at this time. And mm -hmm. from the late 80s to the early 90s, I mean, there, were, there was a spectacular run of, of Black films in theaters, which, I, you know, is iconic. And, and to this day, we still celebrate them. Yeah. And... The producer, Doug McHenry, about making this film, he said that what we wanted to do was make an organized crime gangster movie with a hip hop tip, a nonlinear story with cuts that look like music videos. Nice. And okay, so, you know, you watch this film like that, that sticks out immediately. I feel like this film, <laughs> I feel like this film is so nostalgic because it captures the energy of it is just like a music video, especially yeah, yeah. certain scenes where they're like in the club. It's just so wild. You feel like you're watching like a kid and play music video or something. I think it's so cool <laughs> the way that they shot that. And uh -huh. Mario Van Peebles is just behind that all together. And he references some notable crime films for this as inspiration, including most significantly Scarface. And mm. watch this film. Nino Brown is exactly you know channeling tony montana uh and they yeah. even show scarface on tvs in this film which i mean how <laughs> how much more can you can you get you know an and, homage <laughs> yeah the main homage to to scarface yeah yeah 
This is also made around the apex of the crack epidemic in black and colored communities. Mm -hmm. And this film places most of its focus on that vicious cycle of not just being addicted, but also uh, create, you know, manufacturing and selling crack as business. And it's a film that feels firsthand, like it's very much inside the problem um, in these communities. And that's a credit to Van Peebles. So watching some of the behind the scenes here, I get a clear sense of his passion for telling this story. This guy's like, he's, <laughs> he's in various locations of this film and he's just geeked about everything that he's doing and he's done within that film. He's telling us about camera angles and it's a really great behind the scenes and uh, I'll include it in the show notes, but the very important thing is that Van Peebles is passionate about the story. And regardless of the, you know, of the, you know, I guess critical perception of this film, I think that that really has been shown here. And so we're talking about the neo-noir genre. I think what this does is it captures the complexity of men and that's in connection to the neo-noir. So for example, you have Nino Brown and yeah, I tell you, he's soulless. He is mm -hmm. god awful in this film. Yeah. He's an immoral villain and completely self-interested. And you have Detective Appleton, who's played by Ice T. Love me some Ice T. <laughs> Any Law and Order fans? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he's he's seeking vengeance against Nino Brown. He's very much the anti-hero that the neo-noir genre uh, has as a as a uh, common trope. And no matter what, he's going to take Nino Brown down. And he does some despicable things in the film as well to do that. And there's only one genre convention missing from the neo-noir. Do you think you know what that is just from what I said so far? No. Oh, femme fatale. Femme fatale, yeah. Oh, so, okay. yeah, you said no women really. So there's no there's no femme fatale here, huh? No femme fatale. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, try and see if any of the male actors were a femme fatale. I don't think there was any, um, mm -hmm. you know, that would that'd be, be silly. That'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a weird subversion. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but nonetheless, this is an interesting neo-noir because it is very much um, taking inspiration from previous neo-noirs from, you know, the 60s, 70s, and kind of reinventing that into a story about the Black community and problems within that. And to just go over a little bit of the film and give you an idea of the type of uh, essence the film carries here. So the first shot we see is that we're pushing into New York and immediately you're hit with the line. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Y'all about to witness some street knowledge. And some street knowledge <laughs> was delivered. Oh. <laughs> now your cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw this film actually. Uh, I was gonna I was gonna wow. say I saw this okay. film when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> what is it with watching this film as kids? I know. <laughs> I, I was gonna tell you, Eric. I was gonna wait till you finished, but um I actually saw New Jack City when I was a kid um on HBO. Okay. And I probably shouldn't even seen this movie as like a kid. And this was like before the HBO Max days when it was just HBO. And this movie traumatized me. <laughs> it was like, it's like as a kid, like seen, um, because I think the movie actually does a really good job of showing the crack ep epidemic. Like it's really ugly in the yeah. movie. It's really brutal. And I just, I still, I still vividly remember certain shots in the movie. Yeah. There's so, like, 
There's no. one scene in particular where it's Chris Wa- uh, Chris Chris Brock. Chris, I thought you were gonna say like Christopher Walken. <laughs> I was like, wrong movie, Eric. That's the, that's King of New York. That's King of New York, <laughs> where Chris Brock and um, you know this he has this uh, you know he has this woman next to him and they're both you know going through a withdrawal. It was oh, intense. God, was- you know I. I Movies like that, especially like it makes me think of like Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. Um, but yeah, movies where they show they do a really, really good job of showing um, drug drug withdrawals and just showing addiction. Oh, my God. It really gets under your skin. Um, those movies do. So, yeah. And the influence of Nino Brown in all of this, right? Like Nino Brown's like the the guy that is circulating this problem and profiting on it. Mm-hmm. And. So interesting enough, I think one of the questions, um, actually, so I watched this with my sister Mm -hmm. and she had brought up an interesting point because a part of this film kind of wants to blame Nino Brown for the problem, right? Because you have a a black anti-hero and you also have a black villain. And my sister was thinking, well, doesn't this convolute, you know, a, a certain perception on you know, the Black community, that's their fault. And so I thought that was an interesting question asked here. Uh, I personally think that it, the film at the very end will tell you very much who the, who the, who the bad people are in this film, right? You've yeah. seen it and, and it happens at the very end and, and you, you are left with knowing who exactly is the problem. But mm-hmm. for somebody who may not be so um, privy to, to exactly what the film is trying to say, I think that there's, uh, that can get the wrong perception about mm-hmm. who exactly is the villain about this issue so yeah definitely no, no, interesting. definitely mm-hmm. yeah and um to go more into this you know the themes of this film the new american dream is a line by nino brown and in which he says you gotta rob to get rich in the reagan era and um, so yeah i mean that's that's cold blunt right there yeah. why it made me ask why the war on drugs even persevered and mm-hmm. the film kind of gives some answers here you have a discreditation of the color communities. You have politicians and businessmen who are profiting from dealers or from just the overall war going on in these communities. Mm-hmm. Some people who are just sociopaths that want to just provoke war. And, yeah. you know, quite simply in this era, if you weren't losing, you were winning. And that's a, I see the problems today. Um, I don't want to get too, uh, you know, too uh, too specific on this issue but yeah you know it's like you kind of look at what's what are the problems we face today and and you kind of take it back to this right like this time period of when people were constantly screwing each other over to make profits you know ugly ugly business uh where everything was you know i guess disintegrated in terms of uh, morals or rules or laws or even just you know being your brother's keeper as the film says it so yeah, it's like, okay, you know, is Nino Brown really uh, to blame here when it's like the system already was just fucked, <laughs> like, you know, for lack of a better word, um, it, you know, it, it's uh, the American dream, you know, it has set people up on like a lie, essentially. They're so weird, it's ugly head. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like, you know, you said you don't want to get too much into that but I think that's saying enough where um I think the movie does a good job of showing that yeah so it's 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 one that leaves you you know at least thinking about the problem and um I do admit though that I guess it's just a little shallow especially 
watching it currently, um, you know, as a kid, I thought it was totally badass, but watching it currently, it's kind of uh, lost a bit of its depth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, some of the, there's, there's some funny things I noticed that are just kind of like, you know, I couldn't help but point out because they're a little bit of distractions in the film. <laughs> the ending. Like, like what? So, so there's this one scene at the end. Uh, it's not a spoiler, but they're, they're yeah. chasing after Nino Brown. And in the factory that they're in reminded me of Nightmare on Elm Street in the dreamscape where like <laughs> Freddy Krueger takes people and it's like this like factory with like all this steam and it's really dark. And I'm uh-huh. like, they're like chasing him through this like you know like this factory and i'm like it's like freddy krueger gonna pop out right here. <laughs> oh my god wrong movie <laughs> wrong movie but it looks the set is so similar it reminded to you that. it yeah. yeah i was like that's yeah, yeah. that's nightmare have, on elm street i have that sometimes with certain movies you know you see like a certain scene and just like it takes you out <laughs> it just takes you right out and all of a sudden like you said you're in a freddy krueger <laughs> freaking movie and going back to the <laughs> going back to episode three with the big chill um and how i thought you know my wife thought that that was the forest gump house i'm like oh, oh there we go i'm yeah, taking it back to yeah. another movie like yeah, yeah, yeah a movie within a movie laughs um, like a box of chocolate <laughs> <laughs> it's a brave soul <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm always doing that, huh? I'm like singing or quoting a movie, acting out of scene. The show would be half as half as great if you didn't do them. So thank you for that. I thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Here's a here's another one. So to enter the so basically what happens in the film, and I'm not giving enough, not giving a lot away here, but basically, Pookie is used to infiltrate Nino Brown's crack house, right? Mm-hmm. And to enter the house, you know, Pookie tells Appleton, he's like, the code is beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like a Star Trek reference in this yeah. film. Like, come on, man. <laughs> that's kind of badass, though. <laughs> yeah, I thought that would be like a code name, beam me up, Scotty. Like, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> right on. Yeah, Chris Rock is seriously like the funny backbone of this film. And <laughs> it, it gets super melodramatic when he's not there sometimes. So, um but just to give you like an idea of like, again, the biggest point here, uh, by the end of the film, the biggest point is made, which is when Appleton says, the world is mine, that's the problem. And mm. I think taking that away, um, selfishness, right? Like, yeah, you know, greed and arrogance. Uh, this film is about the rise and fall of Nino Brown. And mm-hmm. uh, even though he was, you know, screwing everybody over and his whole community and there's a very much resentment in that and Scotty Appleton and the way that he at the very end is confronting Nino Brown and all of that is is just excellent excellent conflict in acting and you you do feel a little a little bad for Nino Brown though because you know that he is not the problem but a symptom of the problem here mm-hmm. and the film the film will will get you at certain moments because of that like you know that there is a lot of empathy for Nino Brown um, much the same as its inspiration which was Scarface and sort of the yeah I was gonna say the world is the world the world is yours right Um, yeah that globe um was like in the movie too I remember that it's a very Montoya. yeah those two I mean you can just tell that Van Peebles you know Scarface was his you know reference point um Mm -hmm. very much his own film and um a film that's that's completely specific to color communities right and and this effect that it had on them so uh, to conclude this, uh, I do want to say that although it's a little shallow in depth, I think that this film just highlighted a huge problem that not many other films did at its time. 
and also to have such like passion for that for that issue and to be so in proximity to it you know as it feels is is quite spectacular um it's a real tour de force for wesley snipes he's got some corny lines in this but (laughs) (laughs) people love that people love that though eric (laughs) it's true yeah i i love i kind of eat that up sometimes like you know sometimes you need that you know and he delivers on that like these these lines are so you know 1991 but yeah it's honestly it's probably my favorite wesley snipes film um, yeah out of out of all of them and uh, my favorite more than blade more than blade uh blade is a little yeah i I don't know but this one this one i always know him as nino brown and a lot of love for a lot of love for mario van peebles and Mm -hmm. um his his directing career is kind of short-lived but i have you know mad respect for him and uh and his passion for the story It, it really shows yeah last thing to mention if you want to watch this this is on hulu if you have a subscription check it out i'm not guilty You're the one who's guilty. Lawmakers, the politicians, the Colombian drug lords, all you who lobby against making drugs legal, just like you did with alcohol during the prohibition. You're the one who's guilty. I mean, come on, let's kick the ballistics here. Ain't no Uzis made in Harlem. I mean, not one of us in here owns a poppy feet. This thing is bigger than Nino Brown. This is big business. This is the American way. And the tagline of my first film of the day, I'm going to start off with a tagline. To break the driver, the cop was willing to break the law. And I'm talking about The Driver from 1978, directed by the one and only Walter Hill. 20th Century Fox presents Two Men on Opposite Sides of the Law. Ryan O'Neill. Bruce Dern, and between them, Isabella Johnny. Three loners playing a ruthless game none of them could afford to lose in The Driver. Ryan O'Neill is the driver. My line of work is kind of hard to come by. His reputation, the best wheel man in the city. Did you ever get caught on one of your jobs? Hasn't happened yet. Bruce Dern is the detective. I'm very good at what I do. His reputation, the toughest cop in the city. You saw the man who was driving the car, yet you didn't identify him. Do you got a reason? I just don't like you. You get out of my town, because you go out on one more job, and I'm going to nail you. You might be getting too big. Two men driven by their need to prove they were the best. How are you going to get downstairs? Sounds like you got a problem. I'm much better at this game than you are. You win, you make some money. I win. You're going to do 15 years. To them, the money, the law, even their lives no longer counted. You don't care about the money. Might even send it to him. Who was best was all that mattered. To break the cop, the driver was willing to risk it all. To break the driver, the cop was willing to break the law. Boy, applaud! It'll cost you two years. Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Dern, Isabella Johnny, the driver. A ruthless game 
between two legends. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. All right. Okay, so just to give a brief synopsis. <laughs> I love that one. Like, Mic drop. <laughs> All right, so just to give a brief synopsis here, um, an enigmatic man of fast cars and few words, the driver excels at maneuvering getaway vehicles through the tightest of spots, making him quite in demand in criminal circles. His, skilled, his skill and notoriety, however, infuriate the detective who becomes obsessed with taking down the driver. Luckily for the speed-loving anti-hero, the player, a gorgeous and resourceful woman, is around to help Help him elude the detective. All right. <laughs> so, so that synopsis reminds me a bit of a recent film, but I know you're going to get into that. Oh, uh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's just hint, hint. <laughs> hint, hint. We will save the best for last, but I know you're talking about Eric. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, so I just want to say that um, this movie was actually, it was written by Walter Hill. Um, his inspiration for this was, um, this is a quote from uh, the book I mentioned earlier, the American uh, neo-noir book. Um, so Walter Hill said this, when I became a director, I continued to believe truly noir characters could have dramatic focus, as in The Driver, where the players didn't even need names for an audience to grasp who they were, what they were about, as in Johnny Handsome, where the protagonist's criminal code becomes his destiny, as in Undisputed, where meaningful victory is compromised by the inability to alter one's fate. Oh, okay, crazy. so I know. So this stood out to me right away. Okay, so about the cast. Um, Hill's characters are so archetypal that they don't even have names, if you can believe it or not. Um, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. So starting off, who is the driver, is a great 70s actor, Ryan O'Neill. So the role of the driver was originally intended for Steve McQueen, another great uh, 60s, 70s star, but he turned down the role because as Hill stated, he refused to star in another film that revolves substantially around cars because he has art, he had already done the getaway. Mm. So Hill was then contacted by Ryan O'Neill's agent. And according to Hill, he stated, we talked about the role and talked about the minimalist approach I wanted to try. He felt he could do it and we just got comfortable with each other. Although considered primarily a comedy and romantic star at the time, O'Neill's casting enabled the filmmakers to secure financing. So then uh, following the driver, we have the detective played by Bruce Dern. So um, the studio recommended uh, Robert Mitchum actually for the role of the detective. Um, Hill liked the idea and met with Mitchum to discuss the part, but the actor turned it down. And then we have the player um, played by Isabel Ajani. So several actors were actually considered for the for the female lead, including uh, Julie Christie and Charlotte Rampling. Eventually, it went to Isabel Adjani, who had gained an international reputation with the story of Adele H. Um, from 1975. This was actually Adjani's first Hollywood role. And of Hill, Adjani commented, I think he's wonderful, very much in the tradition of Howard Hawks. Lean and spare. The, the story is contemporary, but also very stylized. And the roles that Ryan and I play are like Bogart and Bacall. We are both gamblers in our souls, and we do not show our emotions or say a lot. For us, talk is cheap. 
I am really quite a mysterious girl in this film with no name and no background. And I must say that it is restful not to have a life behind me. This way, I don't have to dig deep and to play the part. All I know is that life is for me is gambling and I am a loser. I have what people call a poker face. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would imagine that like Walter Hill's archetypes are an actor's dream just because yeah. you can play it so straight in a in one mm-hmm. direction. You know, you're not worried about a whole that you know dynamic of, of things, but yeah. That's- very much I know because it, it leave it it leaves if anything the audience to be like okay there's so much room for interpretation here right like you know because like uh she said like the poker the poker face like my god like her character and uh the driver's character are like so poker face but like that leaves you with a lot of mysteriousness like who are these people you know yeah um so to say the last of the cast uh then we have uh the great ronnie blakely who plays the connection and previously she's known for her work uh, on robert altman's 1975 film nashville as the fictional country superstar barbagine um so this film i have to talk about the neo-noir themes because it is actually considered one of the most stylized examples of conscious and relatively early neo-noir. And in the book, American Neo-Noir, like uh, Walter Hill does the forward, like they talk about the driver a lot in there. So you could tell it's definitely one that um, was definitely one of the early neo-noir films to do it. Um, So like its characters, the narrative is laconic and spare, alternating between high-speed Uh, chases down dark wet streets or in claustrophobic parking structures with abrupt expository scenes. Um, The detective is so obsessed with catching the driver that he blackmails another criminal into setting him up. And the woman known as the player is so obsessed with gambling that she's unable to give the driver any emotional support. Um, So the motivations for the driver are actually, they're never reasonably clear. Like he's only known as the best wheel man in town. Um, And like many classic noir figures, wandering through dark rooms, silhouetted or in sidelight, the driver lives on the edge of an ill-defined underworld. Um, Yeah, so the driver is like the most mysterious character out of all of them. You don't really know what his motivations are. They're not quite clear. Yeah, Um, that poker face, right? Like just keeping mm -hmm. it, keeping it sparse. Keeping it cool, like Ryan Gosling, huh? I wish I could do that. uh, (laughs) in a film I'll get into uh, later (laughs) but yeah um let's talk about the legacy (laughs) here we go so Tarantino lists the driver as one of the quote coolest movies of all time the very Tarantino thing to say and hello the film influenced drive (laughs) 2011 the movie that was directed by uh Nicholas Weindine uh, Refn so according to Hill he said quote It's a very different movie. It has certain things, as Nick has told me, that are homage, and that's fine. It's very complimentary. I bear him no animosity or anything. I think he's a remarkably talented guy and quite like him, which I thought was interesting because I think most people, you know, I would say nowadays probably know about Drive more than the driver, if anything. Like, you'd really have to know like film history or like more like classic cinema to be like okay I know the driver from Walter Hill but I would say that it's like unfortunate though because it's like for me okay you know drive I I liked it it stands alone as its own thing for sure but it's like know also where that your influence came from you know especially if like you're a movie lover or you're you're just getting into film it's like no 
have appreciation for like where these for where these films have like their direct influences from this is a prime example right here right saying that drive was cutting edge and ahead of its <laughs> time would be a really silly thing um yeah. yeah 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 so it's like give give credit to where credit's due and it's like walter hill here like here you know because he wrote the story for sure and if you like drive then you're probably gonna like the driver um you know so. <laughs> yeah at least exactly that. yeah so um and then also there's uh baby driver is another one uh 2017 directed by edgar wright uh he's also influenced by the driver uh wright commented actually on hill's film quote its influence on video games is very clear and in movies its style has echoed throughout the work of michael mann james cameron quentin tarantino nicholas rapin and now me with my new film um <laughs> baby driver <laughs> So, I mean, no doubt. I mean, you can even look at a bigger picture and say that this film probably influenced every neo-noir that came after it. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And set a set a certain standard for it. So, uh, but these ones specifically, these, you know, male directors for masculine films, like, and ones mm -hmm. where there are cars and speed chases. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, no for sure. Yeah, I, I, I would say that the movie does has some excellent like uh, car chase sequences. Um, I mean, starting off the movie, that's what it basically starts off with um, in some capacity. It starts off with like an intense car chase sequence and- He ran to the other side of the station. video games that have like come after it direct influences so yeah excellent like homage and then thinking of also like um 
you know, like Michael Mann's film, uh, Thief, um, I would say like, okay, so that one I think is 1981. I might got, I might've got like the, the date correct. I mean, incorrect on that one, but um, yeah, even that Michael Mann, a lot of influence from Walter Hill. So I think a lot of um, even like contemporary directors of today have a lot, <laughs> a lot to thank Walter Hill for, especially with the driver. You know, it's a shame too, because I think throughout, you know, my education, you know, learning about film in college, like Walter Hill never came up once in any yeah. type of, no, any type of study. Um, mm-hmm. But there's so much that he has done for this genre and outside of it too. Um, that should be celebrated more. Uh, interesting enough, he's like kind of what I've heard him call, be called is like a director's director, right? Like somebody, mm-hmm. you know, if you're making films, like you need to know Walter Hill and, and what he's done. So yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, because like in the American neo-noir book, actually, they call him like an auteur, like to that extent, like, they, right. I would consider Walter Hill. Um, he also you know, directed the Warriors. Um, oh, one of my favorites. <laughs> and, uh, and he's done like 48 hours and, and other films um, that were very much like successful and uh, cult films, cult favorites. Um, so yeah, should we be talking about Walter Hill, more Walter Hill <laughs> appreciation. Hell, hell yeah. Like I, I genuinely love this film. So yeah, I want to just conclude it with, um, I just think this movie oozes with cool. Um, so I have a thing actually for like seventies films. So I might be biased in this already, but I have a thing for seventies films because they're generally very gritty, dark and seedy, AKA my kind of movie. Um, you can see the influences of like the neon filled streets and dark corners in films like Man's Thief, Cameron's The Terminator, and even more contemporary directors such as Riffin's um, Drive and Wright's Baby Driver. So easily this film is in my top 10 films of all time. No joke. Um, and I would just say watch it if you're a fan of film noir and neo-noir films. If you've seen Marissa's uh cabinet of films you got to know that that top 10 inclusion is no light thing that's a pretty <laughs> i know pretty serious i i yeah i'm yeah you're right eric i'm very very serious about this and um yeah immediately when i finished the driver i was like oh my god that movie was just excellent i had such a good time watching it and um i just want to say that um i own the studio canals uh, region b blu-ray of this film there is a region a blu-ray um which is like a Blu-ray for um, like American, like North American um, audiences. Uh, there's a, but it's out of print. It's a Blu-ray from uh, Twilight Time. Unfortunately, this film is not currently streaming, but, but I do have to say, <laughs> if you have a region-free uh, Blu-ray player, I highly recommend picking up the Studio Canals um, Blu-ray because it looks very sharp. Um, I'm not, I wasn't willing to fork out the money for the out-of-print Blu-ray from Twilight Time because that unfortunately is going in the hundreds on eBay. So Damn. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe me. There when you're into like physical media and there's like people who are like on it with the out-of-print, out-of-print um Blu-rays, but I was not willing to wait around. I was just like, I want to see the driver so bad. So I finally got to see it. But yeah, the Studio Canals region uh, Bre- uh region B Blu-ray. When you imagine the greatest drivers in the world, you think of the Indy 500, Monte Carlo, Le Mans, and Daytona. You don't think of this. Come on, now move! Move, 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 move! The world of the getaway driver.
are no screaming fans, no manicured tracks, and the only trophy is survival. All right, so my film number two, uh, no introduction to this one. I flat out loved it. I think this is my favorite of the bunch, to be honest. And that is Devil in a Blue Dress, 1995, directed by Carl Franklin. For Ezekiel Rollins, L.A. was a world of sunshine and shadows. Hey, easy. How you doing, baby? Huh. Junior, take easy on upstairs. Black and white. We got no work here. I'm sorry, fella. My name's not Fella. My name is Ezekiel Rollins. So here you need a job. What kind of work you do? I'm just looking for somebody. Daphne Monet. Fiance of Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. He thought he knew how to play the game. Any of y'all seen a white girl by the name of Dahlia, Delilah, or something like that? Her name is Daphne. You can't get none of that tonight. You know Until he stepped into a world. Why don't you tell me about your friend Daphne? Colored woman ain't good enough for you no more, huh? Where there are no rules. Why are you arresting me? How much time did you leave Greta James' house this morning? What is going on? She's not going to be waking up, Ezekiel. He's looking for a woman no one wants found. Was there anyone with you? A young lady named Daphne Monet, perhaps? The incumbent mayor, the chief of police, close personal friends of mine. Then they can help us find him. No, they can't. And getting in deeper than he ever expected. Uh-huh. This is Daphne Monet. You're looking for me. Ah! I don't know if I should think of you as a friend or as a private dick. Surrounded by lies. You can't trust me, Mr. Rollins. I am the next mayor, and luckily for you, a friend of the Negro. Seduced by power. Unless I give the cops a killer by tomorrow morning, I'm going to jail. Easy Rollins is searching. Not very smart talking about Mr. Carter's business. There's too much going on for me to give a damn about what you think is smart. For the truth. Who killed her? I don't know. Don't lie to me! Start up my car, keep it hot, I'm coming out fast. Let's go! Get her. No! Man, don't shoot him. We going to the pole. Yeah, why don't you scream, huh? From the Academy Award-winning producers of Philadelphia and The Silence of the Lambs, Academy Award winner Denzel Washington, Devil in a Blue Dress, a Carl Franklin film. So this film, it's uh, set in the late 1940s, Los Angeles. You have Easy Rollins, played by Denzel Washington, the one and only. I love Denzel Washington. Love him. Love yeah. me some Denzel. He plays a World War II veteran who's struggling to pay the mortgage on his home with little job prospects. And after a mysterious private eye offers him good money to find the whereabouts of missing woman Daphne Monet, Easy gets caught in a complicated web of romance, politics, and racism. So, Carl Franklin wrote this screenplay and it's adapted from Walter Mosley's story. And... You have Denzel Washington as Easy Rollins and Tom Sizemore here as DeWitt Albright. Tom Sizemore. <laughs> I can't say I know much about him, but I do know that he fell off a cliff a bit, which is kind of a shame um, for various reasons. But in this film, oh boy, he is something else as a malicious sort of evil uh, private eye here. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, quite a, quite a performance. Tom Sizemore. I forgot what he looks like. 
in this film i will say that he looks straight out of the 40s oh my god i just looked him up okay (laughs) i I remember i remember i remember your thoughts what describe to the audience (laughs) what he looks like or (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding we'll just say Um, that villainous villainous very yeah. villainous. He does yeah. look villainous. Um, but yeah, I am familiar with with him and his work for sure. So So while you're at it searching these up, search up Jennifer Beals as Daphne Monet because Oh, but I know oh, who she is. Yeah. Oh my lord, does she play this part just so immaculately? She is completely immaculate in this film. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And uh <laughs> another one of my favorites here, Don Cheadle. <laughs> Don Cheadle. Oh my God! Ocean's yes. Eleven. Oh well, for for you Marvel fans out there, this is uh, oh God, Eric. <laughs> War Machine. Oh Lord! Of course you had to you had to say that, huh? Yep. <laughs> but if you like Ocean's Eleven, um, Don Cheadle, and he plays uh, Mouse here, which yes. I like that name, Mouse. I think yeah. it's just a cool nickname. And we didn't even say where Jennifer feels. Where 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 formerly where we know her, or I know her from at least. Well, I know her from the L Word. Is that the show? I- yeah okay yeah okay so yeah eric's a little younger than me um (laughs) (laughs) exposed exposed guys um so i know jennifer beals from flash flash dance (laughs) see i knew that one but (laughs) you know she's a maniac maniac like i grew up with that movie but okay so eric knows the l word (laughs) yeah funny enough the l word was around when i was a kid and they're like (laughs) I know I wasn't watching the L word as a kid. I just recently knew about it. <laughs> she was in it. But uh, nice to know that you have fond memories of Flashdance. I think I that do. one. I, do. <laughs> I haven't yes, seen I... that one. <laughs> okay, so some cool things that you're really going to enjoy here, Marissa. So Jonathan Demi is an executive producer here. Be still my heart. He's one of my all-time favorite directors. Throw me in that group, too, because I love yes. Jonathan Demi. And so. that he vouched for Carl Franklin. Mm. Just makes me love him even more. Yeah. Um, I'll get into that backstory a bit. Um, but to get more into the crew here, Elmer Bernstein does the score. And wait, no. Yes. Elmer okay. Bernstein. I'll just say that he does one of my scores for one of my films I'll be talking about. Nice. Okay, so yeah, Elmer later. Bernstein connection here. There, okay, whoa. All right. You brought Elmer it Bernstein <laughs> appreciation episode. Uh we will change Was it the good? Title. Was the score good? Oh I yeah. Mean, Without having to say, it was great. Okay, yeah, yeah I already believe you. Wonderful mm-hmm. noir uh, sort of themed, jing, uh, what do you call them? Theme. <laughs> yeah, that thing. Um, and then your boy, Tak Fujimoto, as a DP <laughs> yeah. here. And uh, not only for the films mentioned earlier, but also for Silence of the Lambs, too. And mm-hmm. Manchurian Candidate remake with Denzel Washington. Miami Blues, I think, uh, also talk Fujimoto. Yeah. Yeah. The ones you listed, Miami Blues mm-hmm. earlier, that yeah. was part Blues, of this whole collection. Blues, Blues Steel. Yeah. He was like really on it, I feel like in the 90s. You know, he doesn't have much as of recently. I wonder if he's just retired mm-hmm. or if. Uh, Maybe. Well, I hope he's retired. He's. Mm-hmm. he's Appreciation for uh, talk Fujimoto. This is now a talk Fujimoto appreciation episode. Um, <laughs> And then just one more, The Sixth Sense, which uh, I think is a really interesting one out of all those that he did. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah. around this film, right, What what's what's sort of happened in the pre-production here? So Carl Franklin, he was able to work on this film after his third film, One False Move, which launched him into critical acclaim, which looks really interesting, by the way. And it has Billy Bob Thornton in it. Um, also Bill Paxton, I think. 
and I can't remember the actress's name, but they're like a trio of, uh, you know, sort of runaways and seems like an interesting film. Um, one of the Dev, early uh, Sundance. One of the early Sundance films. Yeah, mm-hmm. Fizz just launched him. And so Devil became his first sort of steadily financed film. Mm-hmm. And through Universal and Jonathan Demme, he was offered to direct this film and even rewrite it to make it fit his style. So originally, uh, Universal had optioned this picture and or the story from Walter Mosley and Carl Franklin you know read the script and, and didn't really like where it was going originally so he he kind of tweaked some things interesting that he mentioned that in the original script Easy and Mouse were the same person so Easy was kind of given this you know going into what Mouse's characteristics are later but Easy was given this sort of violent side to him which oh thank god that Carl Franklin split those characters up because those two are so distinct and uh, work as a really good plot device as foils, which I will get to that in a sec. Um, so Carl Franklin approached this film as what he called social realism. And so you have a post, post-World War II society, and he tried his best to accurately reflect the economic times of the 40s. And he, with Taka Fujimoto, he worked to create real lights, colors, um, and really only used distinct color on Daphne Monet's blue dress, mm-hmm. which you'll see it. I remember I was watching this film and the amount of natural light in this film is, is kind of jaw dropping. The way it is, it is, it, it looks like that social realistic aspect, something out of like a, a sort of, you know, early 1900s painting, but at the same time is just very meticulously calculated. I really like that. Um, so Denzel, on the character of easy he calls him not a true hero but sort of a different kind of guy so and he also noticed that he also noted that he's never seen a film about south central la in the 40s which i can't say i have either i can't say i have and that really stuck out on what on the watch because you're kind of seeing a side of la that has never really been represented and this is compton Mm -hmm. you know this is um a segregated time in la where you had a white side of town and then very much a black side of town and in Compton California I mean the the, the portrayal is just absolutely beautiful it's it's not what it's not anything close to a stereotype of Compton it's this really beautiful thriving community of black families and living in rows with with each other and and really peaceful honestly mm-hmm. um, a very wonderful portrayal uh, Carl Franklin says about this he says I didn't want to just see it as a film noir I wanted to see it as a story of a man overcoming fear and as a man that beats the devil and that devil in my opinion what he's talking about is racism here so Mm. to kind of get into a little bit about the film just to give some background the film opens up on the color blue surprise surprise but it is (laughs) not you know any sort of cliche it's it's very much a really nice 40s style mural and blue tinted and it looks like something out of a alleyway where there's clubs and bars and it's this really beautiful painting and um, a great way to set the time period you know I think uh, uh, you know you, you know what time period you're in in this film just off of that so set in the 40s red line Los Angeles segregated black neighborhood in Compton Easy Rollins his character is an everyday working man who really just loves his house and uh, he's got (laughs) he's got no family he's got you know he's by himself he's got a lot of friends 
but he's very much proud of the fact that he owns his own property. Like that is his motivation, his sort of thing that drives him is that he's very proud to be a homeowner in his in Los Angeles. But since he's kind of, you know, not finding any job opportunities, he meets Mr. Albright in the bar and unsure of the consequences, accepts the job to go find Daphne Monet. And this is where the film noir elements come in. So Easy Rollins, he has a secret past, something that's haunting him. And he's a bit of an amor, uh, a bit of a, you know, immor- morally imbalanced character. So there are times where he has to kill when he needs to, make self-preserving choices, very much that film noir style. Um, and what I like about this film as a film noir is that it's one of the only ones that shows how a character's virtue as a black man can be tested throughout the film and like what that looks like. So Carl Franklin's really taking this genre that's been, you know, just nothing but, you know, sort of white protagonists, a sort of white perspective and, and bringing that black experience to it. And the way that he does it is so uh, interesting. So for example, throughout the film, Easy's always offered money by the white man for his services. So you have DeWitt who offers him a job. You have Daphne Monet who offers him money in order to do favors for him. You have the mayor who is caught up in this conspiracy who's also offering. They all offer him in this money in this very sort of sick way of like, you know, throwing it at him, like sort of, you know, it's a, it's a very noticeable thing of how they deliver that money to him. Uh, it's sort of like a power move. I think that's something that's a, a very minute detail that, that Franklin pays attention to here. Um, and it also, you know, his race also becomes an obstacle to him here. And he's unable to enter certain neighborhoods and really treated with abuse by uh, LAPD and, and certain detectives. And um, most notably, a bit of a spoiler, but so listen away now, but <laughs> skip 30 seconds. Spoiler, but, um, guys. But a black character dies in the film. And only Easy really takes it hard. And all the other characters around him, all, they're all white, don't, don't blink, don't really bat an eye. It's, it's, quite, oh, wow. it's quite noticeable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, another neo-noir element here, it's a complicated plot. You know, one thing leads to another and there's twists and turns. And you realize that everyone is sort of connected to everyone in Los Angeles. And do you know what film mm. that kind of reminds me of here? Is it dumb, Double Indemnity? Yeah, I was actually thinking of Chinatown as like a more. Oh, yeah, yeah. That one also like a really connected plot. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's just really the trope of film noir. So Double Indemnity is right. And the way that, you know, Chinatown connects each character and they're in their mm-hmm. own web of conspiracy. It's very, very present in this film. And uh, Carl Franklin as well has cited this as a reference to to his film and so going back to some more film noir elements as characters, you have Jennifer Beals as Daphne Monet, who is the femme fatale in this film. And like I said, immaculate. The room revolves around her as she stands out in that blue dress. It yeah. is a really iconic image. You know, mm-hmm. Talk Fujimoto's cinematography here is incredible. Hello, Mr. Rollins. Hello, Miss Monet. I don't know if I should think of you as a friend of Coretta's or as a private dick. <laughs> I ain't no detective. 
No, I was just hired by a fella that uh, works for Todd Carter. You know, I had to pay Coretta not to tell you where I was. Oh, she got you too. <laughs> yeah. yeah she definitely gave me the wrong address. Where'd she say I was? Said you was out in Watts over to the Skylar Arms Apartments with a fella named Frank Green. Mm-hmm. And what else did she tell you about me? I don't know. What else is there to tell? Nothing. I make no apology for my feelings for Frank. He's very dear to me, and that's that. Bourbon? Please, straight up. Mm-hmm. And Don Cheeto as Mouse, such a violent, psychopathic character in contrast to Easy's sort of, you know, anti-hero, but still kind of morally better than that, you know, character is, is really wonderful. Yeah. Um, to conclude my thoughts here, to be honest, <laughs> I don't really care much for the story. I've, I found myself kind of, you know, kind of just not really caring about where it, go, where it goes. And um, Eric, Eric's just a hater. <laughs> No, 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 no. But that's okay. You know why? That's okay. Because I feel like the real power in this film is the world. I felt like I wanted to uh, witness exactly what Carl Franklin was was dreaming up here. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. I think it's just as valuable as having a good story. Um, yeah. It's magical the way Franklin and crew produced this picture to be so organic in its setting. And I would say come to see Denzel Washington and Jennifer Beals, but uh, stay for the unique story setting and accurate historical point of view that hasn't really been represented that well up to this point. And last note here, stream it on Tubi if you want to check it out. And of course, for my physical media peeps, you can actually catch this movie um, or the Blu-ray rather through uh, this uh, distribution company called Indicator. And I might want to pick up a copy myself and check out this movie. If you can't tell, Marissa's the uh, physical copy head over here, and I'm just uh, <laughs> streaming. I'm comfortable with my streaming services, yeah. my little my little cabinet of films. Um, <laughs> <laughs> physical media forever, guys. <laughs> but I'm glad we have an expert of physical media on the show. Hey, easy, find a job yet? I ain't studying no job, Odell. You studying no job? How you gonna live? I got a little money saved up. I'm invest in some real estate. Maybe going to business for myself. What kind of business? A little private investigating. You get in trouble doing that? Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. Yeah, I guess you're right. If you got a friend that you know does bad things, I mean, real bad things, and you still keep him as a friend, even though you know what he's like. You think that's wrong? All you got is your friend. Hey, Luke. Hey, man, get out the street. Watch it.
thought about what Odell had said about friends, and it made sense to me. Odell goes to church every Sunday, so he would know. Later on, he challenged me to a game of dominoes. Now, what are you going to do that for? We got to talking about Texas, and fooled around, and drunk almost a quart of whiskey. And I forgot all about Daphne Monet, Dewitt Albright, Carter, and them. And I sat with my friend on my porch at my house. And we laughed a long time. Alrighty, and my second pick of today, I'm going to read the tagline out. So, seduction, betrayal, murder, who's conning who? And I'm talking about The Grifters from 1990, directed by Stephen Frears. It begins with seduction. A lady with a lute. It leads to betrayal. You're working some angle. Don't tell me you're not, because I wrote the book. What do you sell anyway? Self-confidence. You're not skimming this thing, really? Oh, well, you know. Clip the butt here and the butt there. Get better, man. I can walk away from it anytime I want. I've never heard that before. And it ends with murder. You haven't got the stomach for it. Academy Award nominee for Best Actress, Angelica Houston. Get off the grift, boy. John Cusack. I want to learn everything. You want to be a grifter? And Academy Award nominee for Best Supporting Actress, Annette Bening. I was a team 10 years with the best in the business. I'm still the best long con roper you'll ever see. In the highly acclaimed new thriller from the director of Dangerous Liaisons and producer Martin Scorsese of Goodfellas. <laughs> Who's conning who? The Martin Scorsese production of a Stephen Frears thriller, <laughs> The Grifters. Okay, so starting off with a synopsis of the film, uh, we have... Hard as nails, Lily Dillon works as a swindler for a dangerous bookie, Babo, probably the only man she fears. Arriving in Los Angeles on business, Lily looks up her son, Roy, a small-time con artist content with paltry sleight-of-hand cheats. Roy's girlfriend, Mira, looks like an all-American type, but is a grifter looking to pull off another big-time con. The convergence of the three hustlers inevitably means trouble for all of them. Okay, so I have to start off with who produced this movie? The good old Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese? <laughs> yeah, the good old Martin Scorsese. <laughs> um, yes, uh, the good old Martin Scorsese. Um, yeah, produced this film. And it's, it's actually... Uh, it's quite a big thing too. Like I even noticed on some of the movie posters, it's like, you know, produced by Martin Scorsese. Like they, they clearly, uh, you know, ham that up there. Um, yeah. So then we have music by Almer Bernstein. There we go. The connection. <laughs> the connection, which I'll get into that more, but the score is so good. Oh my God. Actually on the way to uh, coming here to record, 
I was listening to the soundtrack to get me pumped up. <laughs> get get you pumped. in the mood. Get me in the neo-noir mood. Oh my God. Elmer Bernstein. Like, I don't know for you, Eric, for um, what is it? The devil in the, the blue dress, right? For yeah. the, the score. My God, it's just so good. Like, oh, I yeah. think the, the grifters without the score, like it just wouldn't, wouldn't be the same. So, um, but yeah, so, uh, so we have the screenplay by Donald E. Westlake, and this is actually based on Jim Thompson's 1963 novel, The Grifters. Um, so the whole production about this movie is the production, uh, sorry, the project originated with Martin Scorsese, who subsequently um, brought in Stephen Frears to direct while he produced. Um, Frears had just finished making Dangerous Lia uh, Liaisons and was looking for another project when Scorsese approached him. So um, he was drawn to Thompson's tough and very stylistic writing and described it as described it as um, if Pulp Fiction meets Greek tragedy. And he's not talking about like the, the movie Pulp Fiction. He's just talking about like Pulp Fiction um, kind of novels. Thank you for making that distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I think too many people might be like, no, no, no. I'm talking about like Emilio Jackson pulpy novels. in my head. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're talking about like pulpy novels here. Um, so the cast, the cast, my God. The three people in this movie. So starting with, we have John Cusack as Roy Dillon. Um, though I have to say, he's not actually the standout person for me here, but we'll go into that. Um, so John Cusack, uh, he had actually read Jim Thompson's novel in 1985 and was he was so impressed by it that he actually wanted to turn the book into a film himself. Um, but unfortunately, uh, Scorsese and Frears were already attached to it. So he though actually um, pursued a role in the project. So Kuzak has said that he saw the character of Roy Dillon as a, quote, a wonderfully twisted role to dive into. And twisted it is. Um, to research his role, he studied with real grifters and learned card and dice tricks, as well as sleight of hand tricks like the $20 switch that his character does in the film. He even successfully pulled off this trick at a bar um, on a bartender he knew well. So I have to talk about this trick. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm like kind of interested in like doing it as well too. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's a very grifty thing. Um, so there's this whole thing in the beginning of the movie that John Cusack does with this $20 bill. And you can't see, you can't see me, but I'm trying to like visually show She's pinching Eric. her hands like a, like a real Italian. You know? like, yeah. Like, to that. like a capiche. Um, <laughs> so make like the capiche hand. And okay, so Cusack is holding in his hand this this uh, like folded $20 bill and he holds it up. He shows it to the bartender. So the bartender sees with his eyes that, hey, $20 for the beer. Though when he goes to get the beer and he comes back, Kuzak slips out the 20 for a 10 and he puts it down. So the bartender, he takes the 10 <laughs> thinking that it's changed for the 20. It's yeah so that was that i need was... a john cusack grifter in my life but those bar <laughs> drinks would be mad expensive though honestly. oh seriously especially here in la <laughs> i don't know I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for these type of like you know con con artist movies these grifting movies like i'm a big fan of um like house of games this reminds me of, like a lot of house of games and there's just so many con artist movies but yeah so I think that's why immediately I was just attached to this movie right away. I was just like, okay, I want to learn like the sleight of hand tricks and all that stuff. You know, you know, he's like, he's conning people. But what happens though in the beginning of the movie is that he does this trick several times and it's quite effective though. He does this trick one more time 
at this spot and the guy he sees that something's wrong here and he grabs Kuzak's hand and he pulls out he pulls out the money the ten dollar bill and the guy gets a bat a baseball bat and he oh my god he like hits Kuzak right in the stomach and like he like yeah, it looks actually quite painful. Like I can only imagine, but Kuzak basically like collapses. Like this guy essentially he bruised the shit out of his his um his insides. And so afterwards, like he's wincing. So that's like that kind of like starts off the whole movie is that Kuzak, he's in pain. Um, like he got, you know, he got caught with the with the grift. And, you know, so it kind of gives you the, the idea that like, okay. He's not the best con artist here, not in comparison who I will talk about further. Um, so Kuzak's mother, or rather, was it Roy, Roy Dillon's mother? We have the great Angelica Houston as Lily Dillon. Queen so, Grift. <laughs> yeah, Queen Grift, exactly. Um, so for the role of Lily, uh, Freer is originally considered Cher, but she became too expensive after the success of <laughs> Moonstruck, which I thought that was funny. I was like, uh, can I imagine this role of Cher? Well, maybe, but like, I just, I, I didn't know that that was, you know, she, I can't she picture was, Cher she, as was a she was too expensive um, to book uh, for this role. But so that eventually the role went to Angelica Houston. And uh, Frears was actually uh, initially reluctant though to cast Houston because she looked too much like, quote, a lady. And so that was resolved with the decision to cheapen her look with like a bleached blonde wig and vulgar clothes quote um which may be quite effective because <laughs> the whole time I was watching the movie I was like oh my god that's like a really bad wig that <laughs> she has on but I was thinking I was like you know what that fits the role of who she is like she's she's incredible as a con artist but like you know I feel like in these movies like they you know they have to show the shiftiness and like you know that's that's what noir is about too, you know, the grit, the grit of these people. Um, so yeah, to actually, to research her part, she studied women dealers at card parlor, parlors in Los Angeles County. Um, so then we have Annette Benning as Mira Langtree, who is uh, Kuzak's girlfriend in the movie. We have Pat Hingle as Babo, who's... <laughs> the most uh, fearful <laughs> boss you do not want to mess with. Um, there's a pretty, pretty like scary scene involving Babo and Angelica Houston. And like the way that Angelica Houston in the movie, how she is, is like, she's the queen grift, you know, she's like the mother, the mother grifter um, and her son, like Kuzak, like he's a small time guy like so she's she's basically the, the manager at your place since your boss called really pull the wool over everyone's eyes huh? what are you talking about so i've got a job so what stop kidding me four years in a town like los angeles and a peanut selling job the best you can do you expect me to believe that well it's there the boss called you said so yourself that dump you live in those clown pictures on the wall i like those you do not Roy Dillon, cornball clown pictures, commission salesman. It's all a front. You're working some angle, and don't tell me you're not, because I wrote the book. You want to talk? You still running playback money for the mob? That's me. That's who I am. You were never cut out for the rackets, Roy. How come? You... you aren't tough enough. Not as tough as you, huh? How'd you get that punch in the stomach, Roy? I tripped on a chair. 
Get off the grift, Roy. Why? You haven't got the stomach for it. And Annette Benning, like, she comes off as, like, kind of like a ditzy character, but that's kind of also a con as well, you know? So it's like, who's, who's really conning who here? I hope you're not too badly disappointed with us, Mrs. Langtree. It's not your fault. You'll give us an opportunity to serve you again, I hope, if there's anything you think we might be interested in. Well, I have only one thing now. Are you interested? Well, I would have to see it, of course. <laughs> you are seeing it. You're looking right at it. Mrs. Langtree, something like this very rarely happens. The fine setting and workmanship usually means precious stones. It always hurts me when I find they're not. I always hope I'm mistaken. Okay, and then so we have actually, and I have, I have to throw this in here, um, Martin Scorsese as the opening voiceover, though he's uncredited. So uh, going with the neo-noir themes. So this is actually set in the present day, but it very much feels like a film noir movie, especially with like the music of Elmer Bernstein, um, the costumes of all of them and the location even in this, um, in like LA, it feels like you're actually in the, in the 50s or 60s, but um, it is present day. Um, so there's lots of cynicism and despair here. Oh, for sure. Um, it's a very noir, um, you know, theme here. Um, yeah, but the characters, all of them, they put up a big front and they're each um, being gnawed though on the inside by fear, guilt, and low self-esteem. Um, and according to Ebert, our boy, uh, for one, he quotes, uh, for once, here is a movie that exudes the film noir spirit from its very pores, instead of just adding a few cosmetic touches to a modern chase and crash story. And I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, no, Ebert actually was a very big fan. Okay, so I have to say, I have this book um, a long time ago that was given to me by my dad um, from Ebert. Um, it's called Awake in the Dark. And one of his top films was actually The Grifters um, from the 1990s. I was, I was like, what, what is the grifter? So for the longest time, I just like, I have not seen the grifter. So I'm, I'm glad I finally got to see this movie, um, especially for the neo-noir, um, because I have to say it's, it's definitely, it falls up there with like one of my top neo-noir picks for sure. And maybe just movies in general. Um, but yeah, so I just want to talk about this one standout scene. And I, I almost like can't talk about it too much because it's literally the ending scene, but I will just mention it just in, in name. So the ending scene with Angelica Houston and John Cusack. Okay, whoa, <laughs> like who really is conning who here? Um, yeah, and it goes into some dangerous territory that you don't really see much in movies because it's incredibly taboo. I will just leave it at that. Um, take my Ooh. word for it. Take my word for it, guys. Taking that word for it. All right. <laughs> so um, an interesting creative choice right off the bat um, in the movie, um, in the beginning, there's a very cool opening sequence involving all three actors. And I thought it was, it was just a cool way of showing, you know, introducing all the, all the actors. So starting off, we have the camera pretty much, um, tracking on Angelica Houston, her character, just walking, walking, um, to like a racetrack area. So she's walking, the camera follows her. Then the, the shot moves 
the side. Then you're following Kuzak and he's walking and then the camera just goes to the side. So now you have two screens and then you have three screens and the third screen you have, um, so it's like columns. So the third screen, then you have Annette Benning, and they're all walking to this place and then they all look back at the same time and like the camera just kind of stops right there for each of these three shots. I just thought that was a really cool creative choice there like you know I'm picturing just, that in my head that's rad yeah I just I love I wonder if that's like an homage to anything I mean I'm sure like many movies have done that but I don't know that's not something I've noticed before um so yeah I just thought very cool filmmaking technique there um but yeah I don't know I just want to say like in conclusion oh this one was so good and it was very dark actually especially that ending really really took me out of surprise like really took me um by surprise so Angelica Houston and Annette Benning, they steal the whole show here. Um, yeah, they actually, they steal it from John Cusack. Like I can't, <laughs> I have to say he wasn't really my favorite here. Like, because maybe that was the point of this movie is that these two ladies essentially going along with the film noir um, kind of, you know, the, the, the themes here, um, the femme fatales, those two, those two ladies, Angelica Houston and Annette Benning they are both femme fatales and <laughs> they are so dangerous to John Cusack's character. Um, even if it's his mother, I will just say, can you really trust her? Ooh. You know, how far can you go? How um, much grift can you get? That's yeah, crazy. how much grift can you get? Um, so yeah, um, Elmer Bernstein's soundtrack, I think it adds a lot of attention to the movie. Um, the score's main theme, uh, The City, it feels very much like a film noir um, with its like light and breeziness. There's like a lot of jazziness to it. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I feel like the grifters, I feel like it's kind of faded into obscurity now. I don't really hear it being talked about. I don't know. Do you? No, not at all. No. So I just, I want to say like, I highly recommend checking this one out and um, you can watch this one. I did a seven day free trial for Cinemax on Amazon prime. Hey, <laughs> you gotta you gotta save a buck you know don't um, forget to cancel that on day seven <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly don't forget to cancel it i already canceled mine but um or, or if you have cinemax hey you gotta watch this one but i don't um but yeah i i recommend checking this one out for sure So talking about crazy endings here, this film, my last one of the episode today, wild freaking ending. Oh my God. It, the best way I could describe it is that it picks you up and it kind of gently glides you along and then drops you off a freaking river. It is so insane how crazy this ending just falls off a cliff. And this film is The Last Seduction. 
1994, directed by John Dahl. You still a lawyer, Frank? Yeah, still a self-serving bitch. Friend needs advice. I'll set it up for you. Husband and wife do a one-time drug deal. Only the wife decides the new house would be happier without the husband. Bridget! She's anxious to start spending. The husband is entitled to half of whatever you buy with that cash. For how long? Well, as long as it takes to finalize a divorce. Called three times since he got the paperwork. Something about a loan shark and his thumb. The hundred grand that we borrowed is 150 now, and he wants it. I'll pay off the shark. Give me a divorce, we'll be even. You get anything? She's in cow country. The first seduction was fast. You have your own place? Yes. Do you have indoor plumbing? Yes, I have indoor plumbing, I have electricity, and I have a name. No names. It was easy. You're different than the others, Mike. I feel like, no, oh, maybe I could love you. But the last seduction... What type of list are we trying to make? Cheating husband list. ...was murder. This guy in New York. Ten million payoff to the widow if he dies of an unnatural death. She's willing to give us a third. You're talking about murder. You, me... Three million bucks. The only loser in the whole deal is a wife-beating old bastard. You're crazy. I'm out of here, Mike. You have a way of making a woman feel like a one-way train ticket. I'll do it. I'll kill the bastard. You're up for this, right? If you find her, I'll be glad to separate her from the cash. She's here. She's in New York. Let's go for a little drive. Where does this end with you? What the hell are you doing? Linda Fiorentino, Peter Berg, and Bill Pullman in a film by John Dahl. The Last Seduction. So before we get to anything describing this crazy twist ending that happens in this film, the film is about femme fatale Bridget Gregory. In an effort to end her unhappy marriage with Clay Gregory, she persuades Clay to deal cocaine, then steals the money and flees to Chicago. On her way, she stops in a small town and meets Mike Swall, who falls in love with her but has no clue about her plan to use him to get rid of her husband dastardly all right <laughs> this film is dastardly that's probably the best way i could describe it and dastardly dastardly wow yes, yes. <laughs> we're here up, every day <laughs> shall i look up the definition um <laughs> so this film was written by steve baronsick and it stars linda fiorentino as bridget gregory Bill Pullman as Clay Gregory and Peter Berg as Mike Swall. And if you're not familiar with Peter Berg, he has made such hits as the, <laughs> can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> what? Was Battleship, the movie. <laughs> oh, that like, that action one? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an adaptation of the Game Board Battleship. I re- yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> and Mark Wahlberg flicks where Mark Wahlberg rescues a group of people from different situations. One of them being the story about the Boston Marathon bomber, which Mark Wahlberg played the hero in. So Peter Berg has gone on to be like this action director of real life events type stories, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, I haven't seen any of them though. So did you say Bill Pullman? I did say Bill Pullman. All right. Tell All me, right. tell me your thoughts on Bill Pullman here. Well, I, I love Bill Pullman just in general, Mr. Um, Mr. President from Independence Day. Yep. <laughs> I, that's right. I grew up on that movie, but I will, I mentioned him because he's in one of my, one of my next films that I'll be talking about. I did find that out. Yes. Yeah. I will not say the name of it, but he is yes. in one of your films. And in this film, <laughs> Mr. He's <Noir> a, guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I gotta say, I loved him in this film because of his wild faces. He's got these insane he's expre- facial Yeah, he's expressive for sure. But I love Bill Pullman. I don't know. Doesn't he just, he's such a great actor. Like he could really pull off like, he's like the dad president and like, <laughs> pre- you know, in um, Independence Day. And then he's right. like so batshit crazy sometimes in certain roles. So. And he's definitely that in this film. Just mm. insane with his, with his, with his actions. Um mm-hmm. But come on, the star of the show is Linda Fiorentino here. Yes. This film is iconic for Fiorentino's portrayal of Bridget. And Fiorentino has called Bridget this dream role for her. And in a 1995 interview with Roger Ebert, she demanded to John Dahl that this role go to her because Mm -hmm. she's never read anything so unique in terms of a female character so interesting Uh, yeah i could see that being true (laughs) for female leads i'm going to describe bridget in a sec but byron byron sick in you know the writer of this of the script has said that he wrote her to be a protagonist not the femme fatale seen through the sex struck lovesick saps eyes Mm -hmm. it was a lot more interesting being privy to her machinations than blind to them which is quite a statement and what he means here is that fiorentino and Bridget Gregory is a femme fatale unlike any other. She takes Barbara Stanwyck and Joan Crawford and all the great femme fatales from the past and blends them together into this badass, assertive, and completely dangerous woman that steps over everybody, especially weak and desperate men like Mike Swan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 Um, this film is batshit crazy with its plot and I don't even want to get into it because it is so full of twists and turns that are just so bonkers and instead what I want to do is just talk about the themes of neo-noir here because this film does some interesting things with them subversion two things right here so normally we discuss at the beginning that a film noir is usually set in a big city what I like here is that Dahl and writer Berenchich actually set this from a big city and moves it into a small town as Bridget's on her way to Chicago. And you see that big city, small city embodied by Bridget and Mike in their interactions. Bridget's this, you know, very fast paced, move, move, move type of big city person. And Mike is this go with the flow type of small city, very humble, modest, has good virtues. And if you didn't guess already, Mike gets literally eaten up by Bridget and <laughs> to the point where Mike is just completely pathetic in some interactions with Bridget. Their relationship is just so interesting to watch because Bridget is this uh, person that can just stomp over everybody. She's the she's <laughs> she knows she's smarter than everybody in the room. And <laughs> one of my favorite one of my favorite lines, I know this is a favorite line from this film of most people is when she walks into the bar before she meets Mike, she walks into this bar. How long does it take to grow a new set of balls? New Manhattan. I said, hey, pal, this ain't no drive-through. Do you believe some people? Hey. Hey, I know you hear me, pal. Anybody need anything down here? Everybody good? Good? 
You good? Jesus Christ. Who's a girl got a suck around here to get a drink? I think I remember that line actually for some reason. <laughs> it is no because it stands out. It's like that is that's that's who she is. Like she she is she walks around with such an energy. I don't want to call it masculine. I just think that's unfair. She but exudes it's just, sex. <laughs> she exudes sex just like how I think I've heard it described by the writer here that just like mm-hmm. a man. Like she he mm. said that she he wrote a character like a woman who what she would be like if she had the same you know acceptable sexual energy as a man and Mm. I think that's interesting and a little unfair you know definitely is something to give you an idea of exactly like how she carries herself here and what I really like is that Bridget's the character the protagonist here it's not Mike or Clay I mean Mm-hmm. Every single film noir has had a femme fatale as a as a supporting character or as a side focus to the main protagonist, the anti-hero, the damaged hero. And Mike, Clay, they're side characters, completely yeah. side characters to Bridget. She here. eats them up. Oh, yeah. Not only that, but she eats up the screen, too. When she walks yeah. into the room, her presence is there. That's her, you know, her mm-hmm. film. And it's more compelling because Bridget's in the spotlight here. Yeah. So this ending completely goes off the rails like I said it's at a certain pace for 90% of the film where it's kind of just moving forward twist here twist there and nothing's really ever that extreme until the final climax a literal climax where it's just a literal climax (laughs) a literal climax where it is so extreme that I just I my my mind exploded like I was just like this is just completely <laughs> 180 into something just wild so I need to watch it again I I, I don't re- I don't know what you're talking about I, I need to watch this one again I remember liking it but I need to see that climax <laughs> I, I can't say anything about it because the you you have to watch this one for the plot and the way that it unfolds to that climax because the yeah. interactions in every single character, the conflicts, right, are just so brilliant and really well written. The dialogue snappy as hell and, you know, Baron Chich and his writing is so spot on. <laughs> Linda Fiorentini as Bridget has so many like iconic lines and the way that she talks and commands herself oh such a treat to watch can we talk um, about her look <laughs> yes let's let's talk about her look <laughs> um okay I was saving to mention this but Eric you don't even know this but for Halloween one year I kid you not I dressed up like Linda Fiorentino oh my god I I was a femme fatale but you know what did anyone get my costume no (laughs) well they They should they probably just thought like okay she just looks like an older lady or something because I was like I had like the pencil skirt you know like the white blouse um I even had like a little miniature gun and like (laughs) like the nylon stockings all these things you know I had like a cigarette in my hand too um but yeah, I had to mention that because I, I love Femme Fatales just in general, but for some reason, just I've always thought about like Linda Florentino's character in The Last Seduction. I was just like, okay, yeah, she's one of the best Femme Fatales out there. You're not alone because um, actually, I've read in an article that a lot of women actually have looked up to Linda Fiorentino as their icon, going so far as like using their internet names and and... <laughs> and handles you know as Bridget um, Bridget Gregory and (laughs) even more funny so there's actually Bridget goes by an alias halfway through the film 
and it's Windy Croy, which is um, <laughs> New York backwards. Oh. And so, which is kind of a plot device, which is, it's really cool how, um, how the film uh, actually uses that. But so people have said like, oh yeah, I've used Windy Croy as an alias online before. And like, you know, because <laughs> people have been obsessed with her in this film and yeah. uh, it's very much a cult film before that. So uh, mm-hmm. because of that, because, so you're not alone here. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, this is, this is definitely a film worth seeing. I gotta be honest though, the film made me sick to my stomach and personally and this is my this is my gripe against neo-noir it is vile and grotesque in its point of view to me worse as bad as any good horror movie out there Mm. I personally despise it for that point of view I I don't like it it's it makes me feel it hits me with so much negativity that like you know it just puts me in a bad mood personally um (laughs) which is my overall gripe against neo-noirs is that like, I can't handle as much over time. Nonetheless, if you're talking about neo-noirs, this is like top five for sure. It is incredible. And one of the better and underappreciated ones really with a script and performance by Linda Fiorentino that is going to blow your mind. And if you want to watch this, you can stream it on Tubi. And Tubi is actually really great, by the way. I want to plug in Tubi because all I did was sign up for a an account and I got these movies for free and like you know maybe what six ads through the whole film yeah I was gonna say did you get ads yeah but for free you get to watch these movies like that's a great yeah. deal <clears throat> so. that's true um also I do have to plug in the physical media aspect <laughs> once again um it is available on blu-ray through Kino Lorber Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be hearing a lot more about our next guest in upcoming months. Her performance in the new film, The Last Seduction, is creating quite a stir. (laughs) I don't know. She's making her first appearance with us here tonight, so please welcome Linda Fiorentino, ladies and gentlemen. I watched uh, part of this uh, film this Which afternoon. Uh, I like the first 45 minutes. That's pretty good, you know. Were you scared? I was. I was. Uh, you know, you're the guy who plays your husband. I, I haven't. Coleman. Yeah, I haven't seen the rest of the film, but I, I hope something awful happens to him. To, to the character or yeah. to Bill? Well, no, not to the guy. <laughs> yeah, to the guy. To the guy. I, I, I hope he gets a really bad case of the flu. Why? No, to the character. Oh. Because he's just just evil and, and kind of doughy, you know, just kind of, you know, one of those spongy. In my hands, he is. Yeah, um, but you know, I, you also, you're no, you're no princess in that. No, film. I'm no angel. Yeah, uh, is is that fun to be that way in a film? Sure, it is. Yeah. Yeah, you get to act like a man and get away with it. <laughs> is that what that is? All right, and my last film of today. Is by a director that me and Eric, we both like. Wouldn't you say, Eric? I would say we do like him. Okay, cool, cool. Well, hold um, on, not love. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I kind of do love him. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I love this guy. I love this guy. Um, he's very um, of the bizarre-esque. And I think uh, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about David Lynch. And this is Lost Highway, made in 1997. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. At your house, don't you remember? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's crazy, man. Call me. 
I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way they happened. Someone broke in and taped us while we slept. Is that you? Are both of them you? We have to get out of here. Why didn't you tell me anything? It's been a pleasure talking to you. If I ever found out somebody was making out with her... He'll kill us. I told you I was here. How'd you do that? Ask me. <laughs> okay, so to give a synopsis here, but I mean, even that is not really telling like a whole lot. <laughs> Truthfully, this is David Lynch. Come on. Even for, yeah, come on, guys. Like, even for like a Lynch film, I will do my best here. But okay. So, a jazz musician, tortured by the notion that his wife is having an affair, finds himself framed for her murder. While in a parallel story, a young mechanic is drawn into a web of deceit by a woman cheating on her gangster boyfriend. But a mysterious turn of events might connect the two stories. <laughs> I love I love that synopsis I found online might connect <laughs> like might possibly connect these two stories can we say that's true who knows it's a lynch movie even the synopsis <laughs> is unsure about where this film is going <laughs> I know that's kind of how it is um so I do have to say that this film uh was it was written by David Lynch and Barry Gifford um and the film was actually composed by uh, for you Lynch fans Angelo Badalamenti. The man. Yeah. Twin Peaks. Hello. I'll um, never, I'll never <laughs> forget that story of I I always think of it when I think of Angelo Badalamenti, where he's sitting next to David Lynch and he's just playing notes for the Twin Peaks theme. And David no. Lynch is just like, Yeah, that sounds right. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> and like he keeps playing and he's just like, Yeah, that's it. That's it. They're sitting at a piano for hours. I'm like, oh my God, that's that's like, such a lynch thing, huh? That's yeah. Bad. You know, yeah. it's what it's what we come to expect out of Lynch. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's not just a, a battle of Menti. Like there's there's additional music by uh, Barry Adamson. Um, but so to talk about the development of this film, so uh, Lynch actually came across the phrase "Lost Highway" in the book "Night People," um, 1992, uh, that was written by Barry Gifford. Um, because Lynch knew the writer very well and had previously adapted his novel, I didn't know this. Um, he adapted his novel "Wild at Heart." Oh, interesting. yeah, the one with uh, Nicholas Cage and Laura Dern. Um, so he adapt he adapted it into the same in the film of the same name, and he told him that he loved the phrase as a title for a movie. So the two agreed to write a screenplay together, having their own different ideas of what of Lost Highway should be. But they ended up rejecting all of them. <laughs> I, I don't know. I who knows how the process is like working with Lynch, but I can only imagine like <laughs> you know a lot just... of meditation probably. <laughs> 
was it transcendental transcendental meditation there have you heard of his uh analogy of the fish in the pond by the way <laughs> no please please tell story time <laughs> story time uh because i've i've watched a lot of lynch uh yeah, <laughs> creativity Eric, tutorials yeah. you tell me about the documentary too yes um, so that's David Lynch, uh, the art life. And the art life, yeah. yeah which, I goes, li- which I which I liked a lot. I'm glad you watched that because um, I think yeah. like you know it's really interesting seeing him as himself because <laughs> he has himself is a David Lynch character. The man, the myth. The man, the myth, the Lynch. Um, <laughs> but he has this thing about ideas and like so he he says that when you're meditating you have all these little fish swimming in your in the pond and these yeah. fish are ideas and when you're meditating you're sort of putting a, you're putting your hand in that pond and you're catching fish and <laughs> and as you're and you, and you may be a small fish but that fish can turn into another fish and then you combine the fish and they grow into this big idea and <laughs> <laughs> and that's how ideas start. And so you have to write them down or else you're, I can go on and on about how he says it. But basically, oh ideas are fish in a pond. And I really okay. like it. Really like it. I love how you also said it in like, tra- like trying to see the like French voice too. <laughs> Kudos to you, Eric. Kudos Talk very deliberately and with purpose. <laughs> What's the forecast today? Okay, I, that was like, so, okay, I'm sorry. That was a really bad lecture. <laughs> Gold star, you tried. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> a for effort um but yeah he's all about the forecast yeah (laughs) Yeah. um but yeah no thank you thank you for the story time eric i love i love lynch stories like there's just so much to this guy that he's so fascinating he's just such a mythical character like he's yeah endlessly fascinating the Um, unicorn of directors no for sure and (laughs) going on with like uh yeah like researching this movie i thought it was kind of like fascinating um because so the the development of Lost Highway so like Lynch he then told Gifford that during the last night of shooting Fire Walk With Me he had a thought about videotapes and a couple in crisis and this idea would develop into the first part of the film so I understand it's always interesting to get the the process of like you know the Lynch process like how he (laughs) how he comes up with these ideas they're so I mean out there like Twin Peaks especially for you guys who have watched that show and even uh, Firewalk with me, I mean, just some of that stuff is like, where did this come from? You know, the red room. How did that happen? <laughs> it's his dreams, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's the fish, you know, that big fish. Yeah, it's the fish. Um, mm-hmm. so Lost Highway is actually also. I thought this was this was interesting. Partially inspired by the O.J. Simpson murder case. <laughs> Uh, oh. <laughs> um, which involved the arrest of a man who denied murder. Um, so yeah, um, it also, it took them, <laughs> Eric, okay, <laughs> us as screenwriters here, um, for you guys don't know this, but yeah, we come with a screenwriting background. It took them one month to finish the script. One month. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> I hope to get um, a, a few words out in a month. Um, so kudos to them. I know. I'm lucky if I even get like a sentence uh, <laughs> in a script. Um, but like reading that, I was like one month to finish the whole script. No. <laughs> yeah. Which meanwhile, it like took us many months to finish just like a feature length 
Some um, of us couldn't even get our scripts done for the uh, semester <laughs> class that we've had. So blame the pandemic, though. Blame the pandemic. But I feel you. <laughs> no, this was pre-pandemic. I'm just oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you're right. I know. Yeah, writing a script uh, or a feature length even is like just an incredible feat already. So my God. Yeah, one month. Kudos to them. But yeah, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so starting with the cast. Bill Pullman. There he is. There he is, Eric. Um, yep, our boy. Yeah, our, our boy Pullman. We should have uh, a, um, a little collection of uh, people we call our boys and just like oh, it's Ebert, Bill Pullman, David yeah. Lynch. Yeah. What about and, our girls? We're not. That's right. We're not, yeah, we're not let's start it with. Uh, let's start with sexist? Bridget. <laughs> let's start it with Bridget Fiorent. Uh, I was going to call her Bridget Fiorentino. <laughs> Bridget Fonda Fiorentino. <laughs> See, Linda Fiorentino is so tied to that role that I mix the names up. Like, oh yeah. Well, when you say Bridget, I was like Bridget Fonda. I just think a single. <laughs> I just think of been, singles. She hasn't been mentioned once on this podcast. I know, or, or... I know. But you said Bridget, and I just go back to like our previous. You know, like oh, like uh, Bridget Fonda. Yeah. These like this... these are these like '90s actresses. You know. Yeah. Um. It's, well, we're gonna add Linda Fiorentini to that our girls list. Fiorentini. Fiorentini. <laughs> It's hard to say, okay. Fiorentino, <laughs> Eric. Fiorentino. Oh, okay. I've been messing it up since. It's okay. We, we mess up on a lot of names. Cut some slack. <laughs> Be nice to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to Bill Pullman, he's the main, uh, he's the main dude here. He is Fred Madison. And he, <laughs> I mean, how, how, how did I not know this? Bill Pullman is actually a friend and a neighbor of Lynch. <laughs> probably meditate together you know uh, i i think so i think they do tm together Wouldn't go mind it. fishing you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right and then we have another uh so going with our like 90s actresses so we're, we could say like our girls this is our girls now okay i because i like her um patricia arquette oh she's great yeah, yeah no she's a great actress for sure um so she plays two characters here um so she plays renee madison um who's the wife of uh, fred madison uh, Bill Pullman's character um, and then she also plays Alice Wakefield so um, really contrasting of characters um, Renee Madison she has like this brunette wig um, very reminiscent almost, she, has, she almost looks like well yeah um, double indemnity uh, mm. Barbara Steinway's character like her like little short bangs and okay yeah yeah she has that she has that look to her um, and then Alice Wakefield's character um she has uh what is it like uh like a blonde like blonde hair like short blonde hair it's also like a very like noir kind of uh do so um but yeah patricia arquette she was interested in playing a sexually desirable and dangerous woman a role she had never done before i mean you know kind of same thing with like what is it linda Fiorentino? like yeah no doubt these, yeah these meaty roles like for women especially <laughs> so meaty it's an interesting word uh word choice for that <laughs> for linda fiorentina <laughs> oh yeah just in general <laughs> she's a meaty um, role she's just a meaty role <laughs> saying that as a vegan <laughs> oh that was a good that was very good <laughs> um but yeah uh arquette though she had also been a fan of lynch for a long time and felt that it would be an honor to work with him as i think a lot of actors probably feel the same way you know be honored to work with lynch mm -hmm. um 
also this next this next character which i thought was funny um balthazar getty as pete dayton so lynch actually saw a picture of getty in a magazine and he said that he was quote the guy for the job <laughs> <laughs> one can only hope that uh, they get looked at by david lynch in a magazine and then find their next uh <laughs> their next lynch movie role that's all it was the guy for the job <laughs> that's all that's all we needed to know and uh he was hired <laughs> it's a very lynch thing yeah um and then um i just want to talk about uh robert blake you got to throw in that weird character <laughs> um of course uh so we have robert blake playing the mystery man <laughs> all right it's... you it's downright comical it's, uh, knowing lynch's films and how there's always like a strange guy mystery man or something what, okay god what's the name of the one? Oh my god my mind's blanking right now but who's the one um in twin peaks like uh, yeah i was just bob bob, bob. yes okay bob. creepy bob right creepy bob yeah. okay robert blake playing mystery man is about the creepiest thing you could think of like you know i'm a chicken like Worse i don't than- Worse than Hopper in, in Blue Velvet? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think so. Okay. I was watching this late at night. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Because this movie is all about, like, the deep shadows and, like, people emerging from these shadows. And, like, uh, you know I'm a big chicken. I don't even, like, I don't like <laughs> horror films. So, like, watching this movie, watching Robert Blake as the mystery man and seeing it at nighttime, Okay, I had nightmares for sure. Yeah, if like, you're watching a David Lynch film in the middle yeah. of the night, you're gonna you're gonna have a bad time if you don't like horror movies. I know. So, um, but yeah, I just I wish. I mean, I could describe his character and and how he looks here, but that's not to say like you really have to see this film for yourself and see how Robert Blake prepared for this character. So, um, but yeah, the idea of the mystery man actually came out of a feeling of a man, whether real or not gave the impression that he was supernatural according to lynch spot on <laughs> spot on um and then this is this is great so actually blake did not understand he did not understand the script at all <laughs> <laughs> but he was responsible for the look and style of this character <laughs> well if it was written in a month i probably wouldn't understand it either <laughs> i know um but you know who does understand a lynch script really um but <laughs> We, we love him for that anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Lynch told uh, Blake to use his, his imagination, Blake decided to cut his hair short, part it in the middle, and apply white kabuki makeup on his face. He then put on a black outfit and approached Lynch, who loved what he had done. Okay, when you finish, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You go up the stairs, and like you're going to go to the middle of the curve. You know, like the like that landing up. It really is magic up there, and your back is to the fireplace. Oh, the ears and the strangeness and all that. And he said, uh, he said that's lovely. You won't have to act at all. I said, you're right. Just like that, and it was over, and we danced. So far, nothing unexpected. Of, uh, I know. I'm not David really Lynch shocked film. about all this, huh? No. He said that uh, John Dahl did this. Um, that'd be something, but yeah. this is par for the course. Yeah. Um, okay. And then closing out the characters, I haven't even talked about the rest. Um, so we have Richard Pryor as Arnie. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, great, Richard Pryor. We have Gary Busey as Bill Dayton, <laughs> one of my faves, Henry Rollins as the guard Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Henry you gotta just throw, yeah, I know. <laughs> just gotta throw him in there. Um, as a guard character. Uh, it's so great. And then um this one, I kind of I kind of noticed when I was watching it, but I wasn't sure until I actually like I looked up after Marilyn Manson as porn actor. <laughs> In the breakout role. <laughs> In the breakout role. I know. You know, of course, Marilyn Manson would be like the random, the random porn actor. Interesting. Um, and this was like peak Marilyn Manson here. You know, this is like um like in the 90s. So it was yeah. definitely his time. Um, but yeah, so I want to talk about my first impressions here. Um, <laughs> I was telling Eric. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm definitely a Lynch fan here. Um, but I have to be honest, um, strange i mean even by lynch's standard this one was pretty bizarre um i'm not entirely sure i got what was happening so i kind of feel like a second viewing is in order for me um mo most definitely i'm, I'm gonna need a, a like to really fully grasp what, or maybe i'll never really grasp what's going on this is the point i might never grasp actually what's going on um so yeah, um, to talk about the neo-noir themes in this film. So yeah, this is generally classified as a neo-noir film. Um, Thomas Caldwell of the Australian Metro magazine described Fred Madison as, quote, a typical film noir hero inhabiting a doomed and desolate world characterized by an excess of sexuality, darkness, and violence. I mean, that sums up the movie, <laughs> sexuality, darkness, and violence. It's all about that. Um, so another film noir feature that is present in the film is the femme fatale, Alice Wakefield, who misleads Pete Dayton into dangerous situations. Um, and then some notable film, film noir references, which I thought were just really great. Um, so we have the, the 1945 uh, film Detour also focuses on a disturbed male nightclub musician. <laughs> I have to talk about because Bill Pullman, essentially that's what he is. He's like a nightclub, a nightclub uh, musician. But Eric, like in the beginning of the movie, it's a very Lynch thing too. Um, so it's like, you know, it's very like, there's no music and he's talking with his wife, uh, with Patricia Arquette. And she has like this very like soft-spoken voice. Like I had to pump up the volume to like hear what she was saying. And then um, he's like, he's like, are you going to come to the nightclub? And she's like, no, I'm going to stay in and read. And he's <laughs> like, he's like, Okay. And then the next thing you know, it cuts to like a scene at the nightclub and he like Bill Pullman is like rocking out like as like a sexy sax man, like <laughs> on the saxophone. And it's just like so great. And it's just like, there's all these like, what is it? Strobe lights on him. And it's just like this jazz music is just so intense. And some Kenny G <laughs> rockouts. 
Or like it made me think of like the what is it that the the sexy sax well the sexy saxman uh, that guy but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, that guy but also made me think of like that one scene in the movie uh, I got a shout out the Lost Boys there's like that one guy he's like shirtless with like suspenders and he's like playing all sweaty with like a saxophone it's just so great um so y'all that- should have seen the way Marissa was moving to that by the way because oh my god if only we had if only we do videos. I know eventually we'll do a YouTube and I'll just hide my face. Um, I had, a, I'm just, act, I have to act it out. I'm sorry. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> Too good. <laughs> um, but yeah, like just to kind of close it out here. Um, definitely chilling. I mean, for me, at least um, the mystery man scares the shit out of me. Um, <laughs> if you're a chicken like me, don't see it at night. Um, but probably most of you are not. So watch it whenever you want to watch. Um, but yeah, Lynch obviously knows how to play with shadows, darkness. Um, and he makes the, the viewer like really terrified from that because you don't really know like what's going to emerge or not. Um, I love seeing the film noir references and the homages. Um, and I think since the film is so abstract, it could be interpreted many, many ways. And I believe like Lynch even said so as well. Um, upon researching that. Um, but yeah, I think a second viewing is in order for me, um, at least to maybe just see like if I missed anything. I'm always willing to give like a, a movie another shot. Um, but yeah, I just wanna say that I watched this movie. I have the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, but it is available to rent online. Hello? Hey, Pete, how you doing? Who is this? You know who it is. Mr. Eddie. Yeah. How you doing, Pete? Okay. You're doing okay. That's good, Pete. Look, uh... It's late, Mr. Eddie. I, uh... I'm really glad to know you're doing okay. You sure you're okay? Everything all right? Yeah. I'm really glad to know you're doing good, Pete. Hey, I want you to talk to a friend of mine. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where is it you think we've met? At your house. Don't you remember? No. No, I don't. In the East, the Far East, when a person is sentenced to death, they're sent to a place where they can't escape. Never knowing when an executioner may step up behind them and fire a bullet into the back of their head. What's going on? It's been a pleasure talking to you. Pete, I just wanted to jump on and tell you that I'm really glad you're doing okay. So to recap our films for this episode, my first film I chose was New Jack City. And my second film was Devil in a Blue Dress. And my third film was The Last Seduction. And for my picks, I have The Driver. And I have The Grifters. And to close it out, we have The Lo- oh, sorry, Lost Highway. So my first initial thought about these films is, did it really take us five episodes to finally introduce a Lynch film to, to our <laughs> podcast? 
that's a really uh, astute observation there, Eric. Um, I'm full I'm of those, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I'm surprised too. Um, yeah, originally with uh, with researching films to do for for the neo noir, I actually that wasn't my that wasn't a first choice of mine. But I'm glad I threw it in there. I was like, come on, like we have to talk about Lynch at some point. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. Yeah. I didn't get to introduce him. But, you know, it's okay. I'll get my I know. shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe down the line. Maybe down maybe. the line, huh? Maybe. Yeah, check on episode ten. We'll follow back up with this. <laughs> yes. Um. But. Yeah, Eric. So I know you said that watching all these films kind of in the span of back to back in a way, um, it put you in a like a kind of what is it like a pit of despair? <laughs> a pit of despair is a nice way to describe it. And uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, because that's 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 something of the neo-noir and the film noir yeah. is that you have these worlds that are so bleak, dreary, gritty, you know, yeah, negative bleak. things just happen like brooding. Yeah. And so it's like watching that. I love. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Because watching this over and over and over again, I'm just like, good Lord, can you pop on some like Forrest Gump or something? Like, <laughs> look I at can't. you. One, Eric, come on. <laughs> I mean, because like you asked me what my favorite genres are. I mean, like coming of age, like that's as positive oh, as it kind of gets. Yeah. Well, it's got its, it's I got love, its bleak, I love but... that genre too, but I don't know why. Why am I so drawn to neo noir and just film noirs too? Um, I'm a cynic. <laughs> I don't know. I guess like <laughs> I I love that stuff. I feel like they're they're also they're pointing out, um, especially with like New Jack City. You know, you said like they're exposing like a, really like a ugliness, but a truthfulness though. Sometimes the truth is ugly though. That's, well, that's what it comes down to. That I think reveals something about my character. Maybe I just don't like, you know, being told like shown the nasty over and over and over again you know I guess some yeah. people just have a tolerance for that and you're right there is some real truth in these films no doubt about it and these films mm -hmm. some of these films are really wonderful and would I watch them again yeah for sure definitely devil in a new dress or in a blue dress sorry that's the Kanye West song um <laughs> which <laughs> I'm sure slip. yeah Freudian slip um but no doubt about it I'm gonna watch these I'm gonna watch these again it's just like you know back to back to back would I recommend it uh, if you're an optimist like me I, yeah. I don't think so I have to say though um yeah so like you know New Jack City even that though is is pretty gritty I have to say too as like a noir fan like I'm just like okay well that one actually is pretty bleak I I think just my personal recommendation to you Eric I think you would really love The Driver yeah no doubt yeah. like that was the one that I was really yeah. hooked on and um yeah yeah all credit to Lynch but like this one is uh, seems like really interesting and I, I did like drive um mm -hmm. you know I personally speaking here I'm not like you know I don't think it's the next coming to Christ I, I really don't but <laughs> and I hope you don't I, I either don't, I don't after. I don't I don't feel that way either um no not by a long shot but I do know that drive drive gets so much love like my god um but yeah you know not to not to yuck anyone's yums like if that's their thing for sure but my whole thing is like you know at least look at what it originally was inspired by like the driver give walter hill some love like i know you like the warriors so oh, yeah. yeah like Which i just yeah may or may not be showing up on this podcast at some point who knows but hint hint yeah <laughs> if you don't think we're prepared for the whole entire season you got something else coming to you folks <laughs> you don't even know <laughs> <laughs> But yes, um, just to kind of wrap this up. Yeah, I know, Eric, you're like, okay, I'm not going to watch uh, some noir movies for a while. I'm, I'm ready to jump back into more. <laughs> 
maybe actually um honestly the one i'm intrigued about um is devil in a blue dress i'm actually no really doubt. intrigued by that one um, i mean i love me some denzel so um but yeah i'm interested in picking that one up and, and seeing that one but what yeah. i love about that one is it's historical accuracy because um it's highlighting something that like denzel said you never see on a on a film let alone a noir you know yeah and that's really interesting um and it very much it's not shot as much similarly as a film noir but but it's sort of like uh re reinvigorating those those conventions of that and and it's a really good film for that and um nonetheless if you like good plots i mean um definitely watch the last seduction too so yeah so i think we we both agree that um all these films um, especially the grifters which I said like literally has faded into obscurity um, and it shouldn't be I mean it was produced by Martin, Martin Scorsese <laughs> Martin Scorsese <laughs> for Christ's sake um, I would think it would be uh, talked about more or just known more but I think that me and Eric can both agree that all these films um, we definitely recommend them just at least maybe watch once um, just to check out yeah, I, I do ditto that sentiment. And uh, now I'll go watch some Dazed and Confused to lift up my mood after these viewings. So if you like what you heard today, please hit subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find us on social media. Our handle is at Film Chatter Pod. I repeat, at Film Chatter Pod. We will leave our links also in the show notes. So thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. See ya.